Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension. This is Naked Astronomy. What are the mysterious blue straggler stars? In this month's Naked Astronomy, we'll find out why some stars stand out from the crowd, as well as investigate the polarity of the universe. By measuring the polarisation, it allows us to look at how the light has travelled. And the light is travelling through the universe, in which there are giant cosmic structures. So galaxies, big clusters of galaxies. And this light is getting very, very slightly bent by those structures. By measuring the bending of the light we can trace out how and when big structure, cosmic structures formed in the universe. Plus, we hear the latest news from the Royal Astronomical Society and take on your questions on rocket stability, detecting dark matter and our place in the universe. I'm Ben Valsler and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. First, a new segment for Naked Astronomy. Dr. Robert Massey is Deputy Executive Secretary at the Royal Astronomical Society, and each month he'll keep us updated on news from the RAS's publications, as well as the wider world of space science. To kick us off, I found out a bit more about the RAS itself. Well, the Royal Astronomical Society is one of the largest astronomical bodies in the United Kingdom, and uh, we have 3,600 members, or, or for historic reasons, called fellows, one-third of whom are overseas, so we're a big organisation, and we run scientific meetings, we publish scientific journals, we have a, a, a large and prestigious library, we give grants to people, and sometimes we even give them medals as well if they've been uh, distinguished in their field. It, it is certainly true that there is an awful lot of different disciplines within astronomy, so you must have a very broad range of fellows. One of the, the strengths, I think, as well as sometimes one of the challenges, is that, we, yes, I mean, you're absolutely right, we don't just have professional astronomers. Because of the way we were founded, we actually include distinguished amateur astronomers as well. We have people who used to be professional astronomers but have now moved into other areas from journalism and science writing through to teaching and, and a range of other occupations as well. But actually I think that makes us very strong because it means that we cover a big cross-section of society. We have a lot of people who are very supportive of our work and, uh, you know, they understand why you should fund this stuff, why this stuff is good for science in general. And the Royal Astronomical Society is very well established as well. How did it first get set up? Well, it was set up in 1820, and the story is that 14 gentlemen, to describe them in those terms, sat down to dinner on the 12th of January in the uh, Freemason's Tavern in uh, Lincoln's Inn Fields. And then they organised the first meeting of what was then the Astronomical Society of London a couple of months later. And they invited uh, William Herschel, uh, as in the man who discovered Uranus, to be the first president. And it was given the Royal Charter about uh, 10 years later in uh, March 1831 by uh, William IV, who then became the first patron, hence Royal Astronomical Society. And since then, 
every successive monarch has been the patron of the RAS. And following that time, it started monthly notices of the RAS in 1829, which is our professional journal. It's been going ever since. Uh, and it absorbed other bodies like the Spitalfields Mathematical Society in 1846. And, and if you trace it through history, you'll find that at various points, various uh, other groups have, have joined in and we've had various associates as well. And now we've grown from just uh, 14 people right up to 3,600. You are responsible for promoting a wide range of astronomy as well and quite often I get astronomical news directly from you. So what has been happening in the last month or so? Well, in terms of the things we've been doing, um, one of the things that's been very successful for us is our, our public lecture programme. And I thought one of the items that doesn't get a lot of uh, coverage is that we had Francisco Diego, who's from UCL, talking to us about the sort of legacy of uh, space probes going off to other solar systems. Now, it's interesting, this, because it's long-shot stuff. I mean, the, the odds of the consequences of this happening are, are really quite low. But uh, a lot of people will be aware of the fact that there are now four spacecraft that have left the solar system, Voyager 1 and 2 and, and Pioneer 10 and 11. And they were travelling fast enough. They went to the outer planets of the solar system, and now they've left it. And they're on the way out into interstellar space. And in tens of thousands of years, perhaps more likely in millions of years, they may go reasonably close to other stars and be picked up by other civilizations. Now, as you can see, this is all sounding very speculative. But we were talking through the kind of legacy that people would find and, you know, what you would make of it if you were an alien civilization picking up one of these things, what you would look at, because... The big pieces of metal are obviously artificial, but they have things like optical discs on them and uh, diagrams trying to explain how you play them, how you construct a stylus to, to play this technology, which, you know, you can see how difficult this is to begin with. Pictures of people and pictures of where we are in the galaxy, which you might think is an easy thing to convey, but actually is fantastically difficult because finding some kind of universal reference point for where the Earth is in the universe, particularly on timescales of millions of years, given its position, some will have shifted slightly in that time as well. It's an incredibly hard thing to do. So we just had this, this fantastic discussion about what is the legacy of humanity? If, if we weren't around in, say, several millions of years' time, and this is one of our sole remnants going out into the cosmos, what on earth would people make of us? You know, would they think perhaps we look like the spidery maps that are included, or would they suss out that the, that the curved, wavy lines are actually people? The other thing about these particular missions, of course, is actually how much we've got out of them above and beyond the original work specification. So we've learnt things from Voyager that we never really intended to learn from Voyager. I, I think it's, it's astonishing uh, how well they've performed. And it's an example of where, you know, the, the upfront investment in a space mission sounds high, but if it's running for 40 years, 50 years, then really it looks quite cheap as a scientific experiment. And it's worth just carrying on that trickle of uh, funding to keep it going. Um, you know, the fact that the Voyager two mission went to not one but four planets in the outer solar system then turned back and took a picture of the, the entire solar system for the first time is now sampling the outer regions of the sun's magnetic field and and just about getting into the region of interstellar space the space between the stars so it's just how much value you can get out of that and as long as they have sufficient power to generate a little bit of uh, electricity to transmit signals back to the earth there's no reason they can't carry on for some time to come i think that the prediction is they'll pack up sometime in the 20 20s. So that's the legacy of, of relatively old missions. What, what else have you been looking into this month? Well, coming up uh, next month, we've actually got in uh, a meeting on uh, high-resolution astronomy, and I think this is, this is an extraordinary area, actually. If I think back to the 
1960s and 70s, if you look in the, the astronomy books that uh, people like you and I would have looked at in our childhood, you will see, for example, somewhat blurry images of, of planets. They're not bad, they, but even the best ones in the world don't compare with anything you see today. And there are, there are a number of reasons for that. We've basically been able to put telescopes in orbit and avoid the problems of the Earth's atmosphere that smeared out images from the ground. And we've also been able to compensate for it in increasingly good ways. So there's experiments in the UK, in the US, in, down in Chile all of which are, are, are trying to get around the fact that if you look up into the night sky, the, the, one of the fundamental limiting factors is the blurriness of the air, the way it smears out light from objects, whether it's planets or stars or nebulae or anything else. And so we have a conference on this coming up in a couple of weeks' time, and it's going to be looking at what is possible with this. Now, to give you an example, I think it would be, I don't think it's trivial, it may not even be possible with this particular system, but we're at the stage where perhaps in the next decade we'll be able to see for ourselves planets the size of the Earth going around uh, stars other than our sun. So for the first time, you start to be able to see other worlds that we could actually, well, not, not trivially again, but conceivably go and visit in some distant point in the future. Now, we're going to have you as a, a regular guest here on the Naked Astronomy podcast, so you'll be back again next month with another roundup. But what should people be looking out for in the night sky this month? Well, one of the nice things about the autumn, uh, although it's getting colder and perhaps isn't the most comfortable time of year, of course the nights are getting longer and uh, you've got dark skies uh, through the night too. If you look out in early November, where there's the maximum of the torrid meteor shower, which I would uh, recommend people go out and look at least uh, on a casual basis. It doesn't produce very many, perhaps under 10 an hour at its peak. This is, this is in the first week of November. But the ones that come into the atmosphere, the particles that drive it, can be quite big and fairly slow. And that means that they can be quite bright. And because they're coming in slowly, they can be quite long-lasting as well. So if you happen to be looking up or you want to spend just 20 minutes, half an hour looking up in the first week of November, if you've got a dark sky, you may be pleasantly surprised. You may see some unusually bright meteors in the sky. Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society. But it's not just the RAS who've had their eyes skywards. Our own Dominic Ford and Carolyn Crawford have also kept up with space science news. Carolyn, struggling her way through a dreadful cold, explained what's caught her interest. This is going to be the start of two new missions to Mars, both due for launch in November. Now, the first one to blast off should be the Russian mission, and this is, goes under the glamorous name of Phobos Grunt, which actually means Phobos Soil, and it's going to take 11 months to get to Mars. And it's going to kind of investigate and examine Mars from orbit for a few months when it gets there. But the thing that's really interesting is it's going to do a really close examination of Mars's small moon Phobos, and this is one of Mars's two moons, and it's one that we suspect is actually a captured asteroid that's just gone into orbit around Mars as a moon, is going to identify a possible safe landing site on Phobos and then actually touch down. And then it's going to ride Phobos for, you know, at least a year. It's got a whole suite of onboard instruments. It's going to survey its environment. It's going to investigate the kind of soil, the kind of surface of the moon, and send us real close-up pictures of it. But not just that... It's got two robotic arms that are going to scoop up about 200 grams worth of Phobos soil, put it in a return capsule, which will then be sent back to Earth, and it should return by about sort of August 2014. That's quite exciting because there aren't that many objects in the solar system that we've got actual physical samples from on the Earth. And apart from the moon, this will be the first sort of planetary body that we've, we're bringing samples back from. So that's the first one. The second mission that's due for launch more at the end of the month is the NASA, so the American mission to Mars. 
And this is a case of they're more or less repeating what they've done so well before, but bigger and better and meaner. And this is they're going to have a robotic rover landing on the surface of Mars. Officially, it's called the Mars Science Laboratory, but it's going under the, the name of Curiosity. And it's, again, it's going to land on the surface. It's going to travel and explore the surface. And it's got this onboard scientific instruments so it can examine the rocks in situ. It can also scoop up, like Phoenix did, it can scoop up samples, analyse them in its own little laboratory on board. But it's going to be an awful lot bigger than the previous two rovers, Spirit and Opportunity. It's going to be some three metres in length, so at least twice the size. If you actually see photos of it, it is quite a phenomenal machine. And you've got to think then how all that gets folded up for launch into a rocket. Again, that's quite an interesting issue. And the landing site is somewhere called Gale Crater. They've chosen that because it's got some clays and minerals in it. They've detected this from orbit that strongly suggest it used to be under liquid water. Because the prime science aim of Curiosity is to really look for both water and any organic molecules that could indicate either the, the previous existence or the current presence of a bacterial life on Mars, sort of microorganisms on Mars. So again, two very exciting missions, both due for launch next month. How long are they expected to run for then? A lot of the missions we've sent out that way have gone on far longer than expected, given us fantastic results for months beyond the end of the programme. What should we expect? This is always the exciting thing with these missions. Uh, Curiosity has a nominal lifespan of two years on the surface but you know if spirit and opportunity or anything to go go by hopefully we may get more years worth of science out of it the other issue is of course how we'll actually get it to land safely and make sure that it can do the work once it gets there what have they put in place to make sure that it will touch down somewhere where it'll be safe well, it's actually just the landing that's that's so difficult. And as I'm sure listeners are aware, we do lose an awful lot of missions to Mars because it does depend a lot on the conditions in the atmosphere at the time of the descent. And when something like the MSL, this um, Mars Science Laboratory, comes into the atmosphere, it's got a heat shield and it's all sealed within this capsule, but it's coming in at about six kilometres per second. It's a huge amount of friction generated with the atmosphere, so it needs to be protected from that heat. And when it gets to about seven kilometres above, the, the heat shell will drop off and then it'll go into some kind of parachute and it'll take it down like another five kilometres. And at that point, it's got eight thrusters which should kick in and allow the scientists to manoeuvre it at the final stages of the adjustment. So a bit like the Phoenix lander came down on thrusters at the end. But that is the most complicated part almost of the whole flight is just that tricky landing, getting it safe to the ground through the Martian atmosphere. I assume this also had a part to play in the choice of where they would actually land it. I assume you can't always just go for the most interesting-looking bits because it's not actually a safe place to land. Well, yes, I mean, so the, the I'm saying it's in the Gale Crater. It's actually the nice, flat, very plain bit of the Gale Crater that's the, the targeted landing site. Thank you very much, Carolyn. Dominic, what have you seen for us this month? Well, a, a paper published in Monthly Notices this month shed some interesting light on why the Milky Way galaxy seems to be quite so alone in the universe. And this comes back to the small dwarf galaxies which are around the Milky Way and that orbit around the Milky Way. Now, two of the best known of those are the Magellanic Clouds that you can actually see with the naked eye from the Southern Hemisphere. There are about 20 more of those small dwarfs which are very faint and that you need very powerful telescopes to see and that have actually in many cases only been discovered 
in the last 10 years or so from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. Now, we think historically there used to be more of these dwarf galaxies, and over time they have collided with the Milky Way. And when they collide with the Milky Way, they're stripped of their gas, and what's left is a ball of stars that we call a globular star cluster. And we think that most, if not all, of the globular star clusters around the Milky Way were originally these dwarf galaxies that have collided with us. In fact, there is a dwarf galaxy merging with the Milky Way as we speak. That's the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy that we think will, in due course, form a new globular star cluster. But there's a problem with these dwarfs because you can run computational simulations of the formation of the Milky Way and of its environment. And what you find in those simulations is that you expect to see about 500 or so dwarf galaxies orbiting around the Milky Way, as compared to about 20 that we actually see. And this is called the missing satellite problem. It's been puzzling people for about 20 years. So writing in monthly notices, what Pierre Ogfer has suggested is that perhaps as the Milky Way was forming, as it was starting to form stars, there was a sudden burst of ultraviolet radiation because you were forming large numbers of high-mass stars that were very young, very blue, very hot, and they were producing ultraviolet light. And as that ultraviolet light passed through nearby dwarf galaxies, it ionised all of the hydrogen gas in those galaxies and converted it to a form where you couldn't form stars from that gas. And so these pockets of gas that were going to form into galaxies didn't actually form into stars that we could see. And a nice feature of that is that it preferentially stops the dwarves very close in to the Milky Way from forming, but further out you expect to see something closer to the numbers that historically have been predicted. And that actually matches the observations very well. And in their paper they've managed to, to produce a postdiction, I guess it would be rather than a prediction, of roughly the number of these dwarf galaxies which are seen. So that seems to be quite a nice solution to quite a long-standing puzzle. Can we also see evidence of these clouds of ionised gas? Would we be able to look for them and, and show that this is where a star-forming region would have been if it hadn't been for that ionisation event? I think it's not impossible. I'm not aware of any observation of that, and I think it would be very difficult to see them. Dominic Ford and, before him, Carolyn Crawford. They'll be back later on to answer your questions. This is Naked Astronomy, and still to come, I'll be exploring the origins of strange blue straggler stars. But first, Andrew Ponson turns his attention to this question from Martin Simons. Martin asks, what will come first, Andromeda crashing into the Milky Way, or our sun becoming a red giant and consuming our planet? Currently, uh, it's thought that the sun will enter a red giant phase in about 5 billion years' time. And in a red giant phase, a star expands by an enormous factor. So in the case of our sun, it will certainly expand to the point where uh, it will engulf Earth on its present orbit. The trouble is that Earth might not be on its present orbit by that time. In fact, it, it's quite possible that the Earth's orbit could move outwards in, in the intervening time. 
Now, the reason for that is that the sun is constantly losing mass. And as the sun gets less massive, the Earth's orbit actually moves outwards. So it, it's not actually totally clear whether the Earth will or won't be engulfed by the sun when it does enter that red giant phase in five billion years time. But actually, in terms of what the sun is doing, there is a more pressing problem, which is simply that the sun constantly gets brighter during its lifetime. And some recent studies have suggested that there may only be something like a billion, one billion years left during which the Earth could have liquid water on its surface. So the sun has basically given the Earth as a habitable planet another billion years or so. Now, the other part of the question is about the collision with the Andromeda galaxy. And it is thought that our galaxy, the Milky Way, will collide with its nearest neighbour, the Andromeda galaxy, in about five billion years' time. So that's considerably after the time at which Earth actually becomes uninhabitable. The thing to bear in mind about the Andromeda collision is wherever humans are, if they're still around, it's most likely that the Andromeda collision will not have any particular adverse effects for them. Because the only thing that, that could really disrupt life on whatever planet we're on at that point would be a direct collision between the solar system and another star or another solar system. And actually, the solar system itself is microscopically tiny compared with the space between individual stars in any galaxy. So although the collision uh, of the Milky Way and Andromeda will certainly be a spectacular event, it's not clear that it will be particularly problematic for life. And sticking with solar science, Kenneth Silver wants to know why sunbeams sometimes appear to spread out from the clouds as if the sun was merely a mile or so above the Earth. I put this one to Dominic Ford. Well, I think what Kenneth is describing are crepuscular rays. And they're actually quite commonly seen when you've got nearly complete cloud cover, but you've got a few breaks in that cloud cover. And if you don't know what we're talking about, when I would suggest that you do an image search on the internet search engine for crepuscular rays, because there are a lot of really quite nice images out there on the internet. Now, what's causing what you're seeing here is where you have a layer of cloud cover, and in that cloud cover, you've got a small hole or a small aperture. And through that hole, the sun is shining, and it's creating a beam of light through the atmosphere and then illuminating a small spot on the surface of the Earth. And if you're standing somewhere close to that spot of light on the surface of the Earth, you see this beam coming down through the atmosphere. And because the sun's rays are nearly parallel, that, that beam has more or less the same width all the way down from the, the cloud layer to the surface of the Earth. But it's getting closer to you, and that means it, it appears to be fanning out and getting broader just because it's, it's nearer to you and there's an effect of perspective. So although this beam of light has the same constant width, effectively your depth perception is not working and you're not realising the fact that it's going from being a long way away to being really close to you. Now, the rays that Kenneth described, I think, were fanning out as they were moving down towards the horizon. In fact, there's, there's a really surprising effect you can see where these rays appear to be fanning out upwards as you look higher in the sky. And what's happening there is that this beam of light is passing more or less directly over your head. 
So somewhere near the horizon in front of you, you've got this hole in the cloud cover and the rays coming out of this hole, they're passing over your head. So as you look up high in the sky, you see these rays fanning out and somewhere behind you is the spot on the Earth where they're illuminating the surface. So that, that is really quite surprising. It looks like the sun is coming out from beneath the horizon. As Dominic suggests, these beams are fanning out and they're going over your head and they're effectively parallel beams. And as they go past you, what is interesting is sometimes it's very rare you can see them converging on the other side of the sky, opposite the sun. I think these are called anti-crepuscular rays. And so opposite the sunset, you have a similar effect where the beams have gone over your head and they're more or less going past the Earth and they, you see them converging. So again, it's you know two parallel lines converging at infinity above you. And so you have this interesting effect opposite the sun. I assume that's got to be when the sun is very low in the sky, so sunrise or sunset. Yeah, that's really the only time you'll see it. More questions coming up. But now, blue stragglers are strange stars that don't seem to fit the standard picture of stellar evolution. A paper published in Nature on the 20th of October by Aaron Geller and Robert Matteo helps shed some light on their origins. But to find out more, I visited Christopher Tout. He's the John Cooch Adams astronomer at the Institute of Astronomy and a fellow of Churchill College. We take a star like the Sun. It's um, burning hydrogen to helium in its core. That's, that's what's fueling it, that's why it's hot, that's why we get the energy we do from it. It'll spend about 5,000 million years in that phase. So most stars are actually in that phase that we call main-sequence evolution. More massive stars tend to be hotter and bluer, but they evolve faster, so they spend less time on that main-sequence. So if we look at a cluster of stars where all the stars were born at the same time, the more, most massive stars evolve fastest, and so they, they disappear off that main sequence and they become red giants. What you then see is a cut-off in the main sequence. So you see the less massive stars that are redder on the main sequence still. But then we always see a small number of blue stragglers that are in the blue part beyond that cut-off where they ought to have already evolved. They're the blue stragglers. So you don't see an equal number of similarly coloured, you don't see a full range. There's this paucity at the blue end with a few in there and those are the blue stragglers. Yes, indeed. The blue end is, is almost devoid of stars completely. So there are a few just beyond the turn-off that are just a bit more massive, up to perhaps twice the mass of the stars that are at the turn-off. All the very massive ones have certainly evolved to red giants or even to white dwarfs by this time. So what actually happens in, in the turn-off? What's changing in those stars? When the star has exhausted the hydrogen in its core, it can no longer burn at the centre, but the burning moves to a shell, leaving behind it a core of helium ash. As the burning shell grows out, the core gets bigger. As the core gets bigger, there's nothing to support it. It can start to contract, and eventually it will become degenerate. At that point, the star expands and becomes a red giant. We, we know this happens because we, our models predict it, but we can't put our finger on the exact piece of physics that makes it expand. We just know that the hydrogen burning has moved to a shell, the core is contracted, and the star starts to expand. But it means that there's, a, there's a, a fundamental difference in the structure of the star. It becomes much bigger, much redder, much more luminous, it, it moves to a completely different colour, essentially, so it's no longer blue. So a star that remains blue is one of the blue stragglers. Do we know what's special about these blue stars that causes them to not undergo that change and to, to remain in their blue phase? We could have them simply by having them born much more recently, so they could just be much younger stars, and so they're, they're apparently much younger. However, that's unlikely, because all the other stars appear to have formed at the same time. 
So rather than that, some, some interaction must have occurred. They must have somehow acquired some extra mass so that they were actually much lower mass stars that would not have evolved, but they've recently acquired some mass that's um, pushed them up along the main sequence to make them look as if they were, were much more massive stars. Well, they've, they've become much more massive stars, but to make them look as if they're much younger. So that late injection of mass causes them to behave very differently, but almost miss out on that turn-off phase. Well, they'll go through it, but they'll, they'll, it'll be later on. In fact, although they currently appear younger, they'll actually evolve much faster than they would have done. They would have lasted much longer as a low-mass star, because a low-mass star has a longer lifetime. They've become high-mass, so they have a moment of glory while they're, they're much brighter and bluer, but then they'll, they will eventually turn off and become giants. So the subsequent evolution will be similar to a more massive star. It's just delayed, or at an unusual time. For them, it's early, but it's delayed for a blue star. So where do we think this extra mass is coming from? Well, back in the 1970s, McCrea put forward a, um, a very reasonable argument that said that if you have a binary star, the more massive star evolves first. When it becomes a red giant, it can get so big that the material at its surface can be more attracted to its companion than to itself. And um, Hoyle, had, Hoyle had suggested this for the um, explanation of Algol, where in, in Algol we see a blue star very similar to a blue striker, but it has with it a red giant companion. The red giant is less luminous than the blue star and um, appears to be of lower mass. But, of course, it ought to, since it's the red giant, it ought to have evolved first, so it ought to have been the more massive. So McCrea said simply that the blue stragglers are the remnants of these. So the red giant has transferred its mass to the blue star, making it uh, more massive, so it's become hotter, bluer, and the companion that was the giant has then gone on to evolve to a white dwarf, which is the, the end point of the evolution of such a star. And we no longer see it. So we simply see the blue straggler. That was the mechanism that was put forward. That's very, that would be very easy to test. If we looked at all the blue stragglers and we found white dwarfs as companions to them, we would know that that's the mechanism. However, white dwarfs being very faint, very difficult to see. Another explanation uh, that came up more recently is because these stars, these blue stragglers, appear in dense globular clusters in larger numbers, it was suggested that they're actually the result of collisions between stars. So if you take two stars of a solar mass, collide them, and you don't lose very much of that mass, you make one of two solar masses. So if you do that just before the one solar mass star was about to turn off, you've created a two solar mass star, which is then blue straggler. They both seem perfectly reasonable arguments to me. How can we test them both out, and, and how can we make up our minds as to which one is actually happening? Or could they both be happening? Well, for a long time, it was, in fact, thought they were both happening. And I was involved in making numerical models of stars in, uh, in clusters, where we actually look at all the dynamics of the stars and the stellar evolution of the stars combined, and um, predict the, the number of blue stragglers. And we were finding about half the blue stragglers formed from the primordial binary scenario, and about half formed by collisions. However, to really test what's going on, if we observe the stars, as I said, if they were formed by the um, mass transfer scenario from a primordial binary, they ought to have a white dwarf companion. So if we could find the white dwarf companions to all of them, we would guarantee that was the mechanism. Alternatively, if we found that they were either mostly single stars or they were binary stars with all sorts of other companions, then the collisions would be the more likely scenario. So what, uh, what Geller and Matthew did was to take a model very similar to the one that, that we made, indeed using our, our own computer codes to do it, of a particular cluster, NGC 188, in which most of the blue stragglers are actually in binary systems, and for which they have 
because you can you can't see it, you can't see the companions to the blue stragglers, but you can see radial velocity uh, variations of the blue straggler because it's moving around its common centre of mass with its companion. So you see the wobble that's there because of the presence of another star, even though you can't actually see the other star itself. Yes, exactly. If you could see that wobble for both stars, then you could work out the masses of the stars if you knew the inclination of the orbit. But we know none of that. All we have is the one radial velocity. So what they did was to take the projection from the, the numerical model, consider the companions, and work out a distribution from the distribution of companions, a distribution of radial velocities that you ought to see for the blue stragglers. And they tested that against the distribution of radial velocities that are actually measured and found that it just does not fit. They did, however, find that if they assumed that all the companions were about half a solar mass or just above the mass of a typical white dwarf from a star like the Sun, then they did fit. And so that suggested that you could fit them all with white dwarf companions and they could all have formed by the mass transfer scenario, but they were very unlikely to have formed even as many as we had expected, even that half that we had expected to have formed by collisions probably hadn't formed by collisions. That's their interesting finding. Does this mean that we now abandon the collision theory, or is there still a few sticking points that make us keep hold of it? Well, as I said, we haven't actually looked at any of the individual stars, so they haven't ruled out that there are not a few that have formed by collisions. All we've done is shown that not as many formed by collisions as we had thought. And, and also, they have, they've only been able to look at uh, the relatively close binary stars, where you get relatively large radial velocities. They haven't looked at the very wide ones. So those could easily have formed by collisions as well. So there's more, there's more work to be done. But what we have shown is that it's not consistent with the model that we had. That means that our understanding of collisions in that model is almost certainly wrong. I was one of the people that put that model of collisions in, and I know it was simply an educated guess, based on a few simulations of colliding main-sequence stars that showed that about 10% of the mass was lost. If you collide two stars and you lose half the mass, you don't create a blue straggler. So I think we need to look much more carefully again at how stars collide. So what will be the next stage for people researching this? What will they need to do now? Well, there are two things. First, we need to, we need to look at the actual dynamics and the physics of the collision itself. That's actually quite hard to do, because although we can make very good numerical models of fluid dynamic models now of lots of things, it's hard for a star because there's a very large density difference between the surface of the star and the centre of the star. The average density of a star is about that of water, but the surface is much, much thinner and the, the centre is much denser. And so it's, it's very difficult to, to get a numerical model that models the whole star during the collision, because during the collision, the denser parts of one star are reaching the core of the other star and everything is mixing up. And during that period, some of the material is getting accelerated and thrown off. We need to refine that, we need to do that, but that, that may yet, yet be a while off. The other thing we need to do is then to look at how the star evolves after the collision because it depends on, on how we, whether we manage to mix extra hydrogen back to the centre as to whether it can actually become rejuvenated, become a blue straggler. It's mostly due to its mass, but it also depends on how much material gets, gets mixed to the centre. And it may, we may change the evolution altogether. We may get a sudden burst of luminosity followed by nothing, although then we might hope to see it. <laughs> Christopher Tout proving that our understanding of stellar evolution is itself constantly evolving. This is Naked Astronomy, and very soon Andrew Ponson will be finding out how measuring the polarity of the cosmic microwave background radiation can help us to probe the universe. As always, we want your questions and your comments. Get them in by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com.
And that's exactly what Charles Moore did with this question for Dominic Ford. Charles says, If I try to balance a pencil on my finger, it takes an awful lot of movement to keep the pencil balanced. But rockets take off without any problems. Why is that? Well, this is not a problem that uh, rocket scientists have always got right themselves. And certainly there are some quite embarrassing videos from the early days of rocketry where rockets veered violently off course and crashed. But it's an interesting analogy that Charles draws with uh, balancing a pen on your finger. And it's perhaps interesting to think about why it's so difficult to balance a pen on your finger. It's virtually impossible. And the reason why it's so difficult is because if the pen tips slightly to one side, your finger is still pushing vertically upwards on the bottom of the pen. And that force is making the pen rotate. And so it tips even more in the direction it's already tipped in. And so there's positive feedback there, and it's what we call an unstable equilibrium. So you have to really keep your finger moving quite fast to keep the pen balanced on your finger. Now, actually, a rocket is more stable than that, because whatever direction a rocket tips in, the thrust is always coming directly out of the back of the rocket along the line of the rocket. And so if it tips slightly to one side, there's not any force which is causing it to tip further in that direction. So that's one sense in which a rocket is more stable than than a pen balanced on your finger. Obviously, you don't want it to tip at all in the first place. So in your classic cartoon picture of a rocket, you'll have four fins on the back. And what those fins do is, as the rocket is moving through the atmosphere, there's an airflow past those fins. And if the rocket is tipped at a slightly different direction to its direction of travel through the atmosphere the air flowing past the rocket will put a force on those fins and direct it back towards the direction that it's passing through the atmosphere. So that makes it difficult for the rocket to change direction. It means if you actually want to steer the rocket in a different direction, you have to steer really quite hard. Now, obviously, there's a problem with that, that it requires you to have an airflow past your rocket and in space you're in a vacuum and you won't have that airflow. And in fact, if you look at most modern rockets used by NASA or European Space Agency, but they don't actually have fins on the back because they're not much good in space. And what they in fact have is nozzles um, on the back of the rocket that can be tilted from side to side. And if you watch a video of one of the space shuttle launches, you'll see about a minute before launch, they're frantically uh, tipping the, the nozzles back and forth to make sure that they've got that control once the launch is underway. So nowadays, the control of rockets is entirely done by computers, which are continually monitoring the trajectory of the rocket and tipping and tilting the rocket thrusters on the back to keep it on course. And Katie Hill sent us a question for Carolyn. She wants to know if it would be possible to terraform the moon. Well, let's just make sure that everybody knows what terraforming is. This is in the sort of science fiction fans out there will obviously be very familiar with the idea. But it's this idea, and I want to stress it's at the minute, it's still completely theoretical, that you could take a planet or a moon and transform it to an Earth or a very Earth-like planet. And, you know, it's not unreasonable that you should be able to do that, because if you think our Earth started as a fairly inhospitable place, and, okay, over several millennia, well, it evolved to something that resembled our current Earth. So it should be possible to do that to another planet. I mean, the trouble would be just accelerating the process. 
but you'd kind of introduce or, you know, change the atmosphere, maybe change the temperature, introduce water, change the ecology, maybe change the terrain of the planet. All of that could theoretically be possible. I wouldn't choose the moon, though. Moon is very convenient. It does have the advantage that it's very easy to get to. But you've got this problem that it's too small. Even if you introduce an ice atmosphere there of oxygen, the moon doesn't have so much mass, it doesn't have so much gravity, it has trouble hanging on to that atmosphere. What tends to happen is that the uh, it will dissipate quite quickly and the sunlight will break down the molecules to much lighter constituents which can easily escape. So you'd have to keep replenishing the atmosphere all the time. The other thing about the moon is it's very dry. It's drier than any desert on Earth. And if we want something that's a bit more Earth-like, I'm guessing we want oceans. We want lots of water, especially if we want to have plants there and uh, that, that kind of landscape. So I really don't think the moon is a sensible way to go if we want to terraform somewhere. Is there anywhere that, that we should be looking at as a good candidate for terraforming? Well, do you know, I would say a much better candidate would be Mars. Because, to be honest, out of the planets in the solar system, it's the one that is most like Earth. OK, it's smaller and it's got the reduced gravity, but it's nearer to us. So it's, OK, it's not as convenient as the moon, but it's not impossible to get to. It does have water and it does have a stronger gravity. We'd have to be quite radical about how we changed it. So, I mean, quite apart from any ethical things about whether we should change Mars, you know, and what, do, you know, would we change Mars if we found bacterial life from Mars, you know, all these kind of issues, just on the practical stakes, it would, huge technological advances would have to be made, we'd have to find some way of increasing the temperature for a start, because the average temperature on Mars is about minus 60 degrees C. If we want all that water ice that's locked in the soil, there's permafrost and what have you, and, and water ice in the poles, we're going to have to heat up the planet somehow. You know, Maybe introduce a nice greenhouse effect to it to raise the temperatures. Maybe utilise solar energy in some way. That would make it a lot more inhabitable. It would unlock the water. But we've also got the problem of the atmosphere. The atmosphere is carbon dioxide and we'd have to change it to oxygen. So maybe we need to do some genetic engineering of plants or things that can then change the atmosphere for us. But even if that wasn't enough, you, I mean, it's the same with the moon. With Mars, you do have this fundamental problem that it doesn't have a strong magnetic field like the Earth. So either on the moon or Mars, you are very vulnerable to damaging radiation from the sun. So ideally, you'd want some kind of magnetic shield around Mars, just, again, to protect us from the harmful effects of, you know, sort of these flares or these uh, coronal mass ejections of charged particles that come from the sun. So I think it is quite a huge challenge. I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's certainly not something that we're going to do soon. And the main problem is, I don't know quite how we would do it so fast that we could actually achieve results within a human lifetime. I mean, you're almost going to feel we, we're, we're slarty barred fast and it's planet factory when you need him. I think that's what we'd have to rely on. And now Andrew Ponson is taking full advantage of his new position at Oxford University to meet some of their space scientists and get to grips with their work. This month he spoke to cosmologist Dr Joe Dunkley. On this podcast we've spoken a lot before about the cosmic microwave background, how it can tell us about the Big Bang but one of the things you're studying is the polarisation of the cosmic microwave background. So what is polarisation and why do we want to study it in the cosmic microwave background? That's a good question. So the cosmic microwave background, or we often call it the CMB because it's easier and shorter, as you know, comes from the Big Bang. And 
it's traveling as a wave through space. It's been traveling for 14 billion years. Um, and you can imagine it as a wave rippling through space. But all light waves ripple in two different directions. Sort of, you can think of it as vertically and horizontally, two different directions of, of waves. And by measuring the polarization, we see if there are the waves are different in the two different directions that they can vibrate in or oscillate in. It allows us to see back to the Big Bang in a way that you can't if you just look at the temperature of the light rather than its polarisation. You have lots of little galaxies in between us and the light we're looking at that also send out microwave light, but they're not polarised or not very polarised. And so if we can look at the polarisation, we get to kind of look straight through those and they don't get in our way. So that's one nice thing is it allows us to see back to the Big Bang better. But the other reason is that by measuring the polarisation, it allows us to look at how the light has travelled on its journey to us from the Big Bang. And the light is travelling through the universe in which there are giant cosmic structures. So galaxies, big clusters of galaxies, and you know the dark matter web of, of structure that fills up the universe. And this light from the Big Bang is getting very, very slightly bent by those structures. The gravity is bending that light. And by measuring the bending of the light, which we can do by looking at its polarisation, we can trace out how and when big structure, cosmic structures formed in the universe. And, and that's called gravitational lensing. We've just managed to see it just in the last year with a telescope called ACT. Um, and so far we've seen it's there as we expected and it's given us a new view of what's in the universe. But we're hoping that by measuring that we'll be able to figure out what is filling up the universe, which at the moment a lot of that's completely unknown. Now, you're involved with lots of different missions. One of them is the, the Planck mission that, that's measuring the microwave background from space. But you're, you're also working on this ACT telescope, the Atacama Cosmology Telescope, and its successor, ACTPOL. So given that you've got an observatory up in space, which is presumably the best place to measure, why do you also want to build observatories like ACT and ACTPOL on the ground? Obviously, it's, it's great being in space because you get to get out of the atmosphere and, and, and be able to look cleanly at the sky. But actually, the ground-based observatories um, do pretty well. So their ACT and ACT-POL are both in Chile. It's the highest telescope in the world, up at above 5,000 metres. So it's extremely high up in the air, where things are high and dry, and you can actually see out very clearly out into space. Um, of course, if you can afford to go to space, and when we have the Planck satellite that's in space, that's fantastic. But there is a limit to the detail that Planck can see. So Planck can measure the CMB, but only because it's a, an instrument flying that had to go up, you know, on a be, be shot out into space. It's, it's got a limited size; it can't be that big. So the ACT telescope is much, much bigger, and so it can look at the CMB in much greater detail than Planck can. Certainly in terms of its ability to measure polarisation, it can do that in a way that Planck cannot. So it's, very, it's complementary to Planck. So taking the future results from Planck and from ACTPOL together, mm. what would your dream scenario be? What could be the, the best thing that could come out from these polarisation measurements? Well, there are, I think there are a couple of things. One is that we would be able to measure a particular signal that could tell us that something called inflation happened in the early universe. Now, that's what we think is a very rapid expansion of the universe in the first trillionth of a second. And there's a particular signature that we could see from ACTPOL and Planck combined that could say, right, that's, that's what happened. This is what happened in the very first moments. There's a couple of 
pretty exciting other things we could we could perhaps see. We might be able to measure how massive the neutrino is. So the neutrino is a very small particle that's had a lot of press recently because there was some indication that perhaps it was travelling faster than the speed of light. This was an experiment happening in Switzerland. We also see these things out in space, um, and we can use... If we can work out how giant cosmic structures behave and evolve, we can hope to perhaps measure the mass of this particle, which is something that's quite mysterious to us in the moment. We might also try and get some clue as to the nature of dark energy. So dark energy takes up about 75% of the universe. It's a complete unknown. It's making our universe accelerate, its expansion accelerate faster and faster. Um, and we have no idea what it is. And by measuring how light from the Big Bang gets bent by giant cosmic structures, we can try and work out what that dark energy is. If we could get a clue as to what that is, that would be you know, my sort of perfect scenario of what we might find out. Joe Dunkley speaking with Andrew Ponson. So the polarity of the CMB might help us to understand the history of the universe, but how do we know the position of Earth within the Milky Way? That was asked by Edward Wright, who's listening to us in Germany, and I put it to Carolyn Crawford. This is a very interesting question because... In fact, it's not easy to find out where, well, let's talk about the sun rather than the earth, given that we're tied to it, where we are in the galaxy. It's this sort of problem of if you're in the middle of something, you cannot really map it out. So if I go and stand in the middle of town down the road, I could not draw you a map of the town just from where I, you know, my one vantage point, because everywhere I'd look, there'd be buildings in the way. The only way I could get a clear view is to be right above it looking down. And then I could sort of map out the whole town. So we can't do that with our galaxy yet. We can't fly above it and look down, but we can be informed by this bird's eye view we have of other galaxies. And there are so many we observe that can inform our view of the galaxy. But just for a minute to step back from this vantage point on Earth, even without the aid of telescopes or what we know about different galaxies, you can immediately tell some things. The stars you see in the sky are all part of the galaxy. And with our unaided eye, we can see several thousand of them. However, many of them are in this diffuse band across the sky we call the Milky Way. And it wasn't until Galileo looked at it that it was clear that this was, you know, thousands of very faint stars. And so the first thing is the fact that this is a, a thin band across the sky tells you that we're not located in the middle of a sort of spherical distribution of stars. We've got something that's very flattened. And the fact that it's much brighter down in the southern hemisphere in the constellation of Sagittarius, that suggests where the centre is. And so we're not at the centre. There's a huge conglomeration of stars over at that centre. Even from just that simple observation, you start to build up a picture. And the fact that this band is quite narrow and it splits the sky in two, again tells us we're not above this disc, we're not below the disc, we're actually right in the middle of it. So we're already building up a picture. And this is how early astronomers tried to map out the galaxy. So you had William Herschel in 1785, who just more or less counted stars along different lines of sight, several hundred lines of sight through the galaxy. And he assumed that if you didn't see many stars in that direction, you were near the edge of the galaxy. If you saw a lot of stars, that was more towards the centre of the galaxy. And he built up quite a good picture of the galaxy that showed it had this flattened distribution. It wasn't particularly accurate because he put he thought the Earth was much closer to the centre than it really is. And he didn't know things about the fact that many different stars have actually different luminosities, so you can't just infer the distance from how bright a star is. And he didn't know about things like dust, which obscure the light from stars. But nonetheless, you get this idea of this flattened distribution. And even, you know, in the early 
20th century, people were still arguing about the sun's position in the galaxy. And, for example, Harlow Shapley, an American astronomer, was looking at the distribution of these big balls of stars we call globular clusters and noticed they were all over in the southern half of the sky. They all seemed to surround this bright patch of light that we think is associated with the centre. And by measuring the distances to them, he was inferring the distance from the galaxy. So it's something we piece up all together. I mean, now, of course, we don't just rely on stars. We have this multi-wavelength astronomy. So we can look at gas clouds. We can look at infrared and radio properties of matter within the galaxy. We can look at the distribution of blue star clusters. And hopefully those map out the spiral arms and the distribution of the the galaxy because infrared light allows us to see further through the gas and dust and so we can see further than we could just from visible astronomy. So our position in the galaxy is we think we are on a little spur, little backwater from what's known as the Perseus arm. And the main arm is about 2,000 light years further out from the centre of the galaxy than we are. And then it's clear there's another spiral arm that's about 6,000 light years further in towards the centre of the galaxy. That's the Sagittarius Scutum arm. After that, it starts to get a bit vague. We certainly have very little idea about what's on the other side of the galactic centre because it's so obscured. There's so much dust and gas in the way that we really can't map that out. And I would say that even up to three years ago, there was still argument about whether our spiral galaxy had two arms or four arms. We finally come down to the idea that it's just got the two arms, maybe with an elongated bulge. So maybe our galaxy is much more of a, a barred spiral system. But I will say, you know, in many ways, the structure of our galaxy is something that we're still mapping out and it's still a little bit of a mystery. The first observations of other galaxies must have really helped us to get an idea of of the sorts of shapes that our galaxy could be and hopefully put some of the results we'd already got into perspective. Well, it it sounds obvious in hindsight, but people had been looking at a whole variety of nebulae in the sky and they all had different shapes and sizes. And even though there were some spiral nebulae that were long since observed with telescopes, even, you know, come the 1920s, it wasn't clear whether they were nebulae that just happened to be spiral but were located in our galaxy or whether they were in fact island universes outside of our own. And it probably wasn't until the work of um, Edwin Hubble in the 1920s that established that they were much greater distances than the presumed size of our galaxy and therefore were other galaxies outside our own. And it's only at that point that observation of those begins to inform and reflect on our understanding of our own galaxy. That's almost all we have for this month, but let's end on a really big question. Jeff Griffith emailed in to ask why fundamental things like the Higgs boson, dark matter and dark energy are so very hard to detect. And is that a sign that they're not actually real? I'm going to split up the question and answer separately for the Higgs boson for dark matter and for for dark energy. With the Higgs boson... We're going to know very soon indeed, probably before the end of this year, whether the Higgs boson is there or not, thanks to the Large Hadron Collider. We know what we're looking for and either we're going to find it or we're not, and then we'll have an answer. So let's move on to to dark matter. With dark matter, there are lots of independent lines of evidence that it's out there. There's, There's evidence from galaxies, the way that stars move within galaxies. There's evidence from the way that galaxies are laid out within the universe. 
There's uh, further evidence from what we call gravitational lensing. That's a deflection of light by stuff in the universe. And also from the cosmic microwave background, the echo of the Big Bang. And all of these very different lines point to the existence of dark matter. But the trouble is that astronomical evidence doesn't really tell us exactly what kind of particle we're looking for. And in particular, two things that we would like to know is that the mass of the particle, what an individual particle weighs, and the cross-section, in effect, that is how often we should expect a particle of dark matter to slam into a detector if we try and detect them directly. Because we don't really know either of those things. We don't know what we're aiming for. So although the Large Hadron Collider hasn't so far found any evidence for dark matter, that really doesn't tell us in the same way as it would with the Higgs that the dark matter is not there. It may simply be that dark matter is extremely hard to create or uh, for other experiments that are trying to detect the dark matter directly, it may just be very hard to detect. And that is not the same as saying it's not real because there's no reason why the universe should be kind to us in making it possible for us to uh, get hold of these particles directly. The last thing that's important to remember about the situation with dark matter is that Although people have proposed alternatives, models of how galaxies in the the universe work without dark matter, typically those have to be really hammered hard into shape. They're rather contrived to get them to fit all of the data that we get from astronomy. And although it is important that people carry on looking at alternative models, because until we detect dark matter, we don't know for certain that it's the right solution, Nonetheless, it's not looking too promising for alternative models, whereas typically the dark matter models do extremely well in a whole range of different observations. Now, finally, we come to dark energy, and this is a bit different because although there's good evidence that the universe's expansion is accelerating, when we talk about dark energy, we're actually just using a sort of catch-all name for whatever the physics is that is causing that expansion. And there are loads of different uh, theories, different possibilities that fit into that name of dark energy. And the thing to bear in mind is that whatever the effect is, it is so weak, it is so tiny on laboratory scales that it's not clear we'll ever be able to do a direct experiment that would probe it. But for a definite answer to that, we're simply going to have to watch how the theories develop over the next years and decades. Thanks, Andrew. That's all we have for this month's Naked Astronomy. Join us next time for more space science news, interviews and answers to your questions. In the meantime, keep your comments and questions coming in by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com and you can follow The Naked Scientists on Twitter, that's at Naked Scientists or join us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, and it comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. (laughs) 